everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Here at the Business Creators Radio Show, we help you win at the game of business and of marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment to visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now let's get started with what we're going to cover here today, which is a topic that in my work through the Business Creators Institute and throughout the pages of my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy, there are a couple key themes, one of which is the application of minimalist principles to achieve maximum results. Another is how we can subtly alter our language to increase the value of our communications and likewise get greater results from our efforts. Throughout all of it and throughout my experiences over 20 years, as either somebody who for a few, a few, the first few years worked in a corporate setting and for the past 17 years has led an entrepreneurial venture, I've discovered in so many different ways from so many different angles the value of putting people first. And we have somebody with us today who has some incredible insights on this, and I am so looking forward to introducing him to you today. I'm going to introduce him and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. His name is John Fairclow and he is the founder of the Resicom Group. And let me tell you about that. The Resicom Group helps retailers optimize the way they improve and maintain their store environment. Under John's leadership, the company has evolved from a local construction company into an international provider of facility maintenance and construction services. And now, John enjoys sharing his stories. He's going to share it with you today to inspire others. So John is one of those people, and this is one of the things I love about him. He leans on his face to help him persevere through the difficulties of overcoming the status quo. Oh, I like it. He values people and understands the balance needed between the strength and consistency of process and the value of personal dignity. See, I never quite heard it worded that way before, so I'm very intrigued to get into that. He relishes the oxymoronic tone to solutions, I like that too. What people quickly discard is often the best course of action. John Fairclough's best virtues were incubated by extreme poverty and forged through his unlikely business success. Humility and, just, humility and justice are the invisible strains of his diverse and adverse experiences. Naturally, people come first for him and finding a way to see their good, wanting them to obtain their missing good and staying hopeful for them are the things he works very intentionally on. So, John Faircloak, come on in. The weather's fine. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. Now, I gave a little bit of your background here, but what we like to do is, by this point, we have listeners who are sort of leaning in, and they have a separate browser tab open, and they're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles, discovering more about this John Faircloak. That's spelled F-A-I-R-C-L-O-U-G-H. You're welcome. And this Rescom Online, or Rescom Online, which is R-E-S-I-C-I-R-E-S-I-C-O-M-O-N-L-I-N-E.com. Resicom Online. So as you are exploring more about him, what we want to do, John, is if you could tell us above and beyond your official biography, tell us a little bit about some of the drivers in your personal journey that have brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community market and audience. Well, I, I like to do great work. And, and I like the, the, the harder the work is, the more I like it. It's, there's something about intense things that other people fail on that, that I just gravitate towards. And um, it's tough to do difficult things without having other people involved. Um, otherwise, they're really not that tough. Maybe it's tough for a person, but when you take on some big challenges that involve uh, you know, a bunch of moving parts and things, getting a team together to go out there and accomplish it, man, I love that stuff. Right, right, right. So... My first question to you, and I want to go back to what you shared with us a few moments ago uh, in your bio. 
you mentioned that there is a balance needed between the strength and consistency of process and the value of personal dignity. This is an area where I myself spend a lot of time, but I'd like to hear you elaborate upon that so that our listeners can understand it practically. Well, we're, we're people first, and a lot of people kind of forget that. And, um, you know, if we were made to, to just auto-reply to things, we'd be computers, but we're not. You know, we're, we're people, and we've got uh, discernment. We've got the ability to reason and, and other things. And so um, a lot of times people get comfortable in that they're, they have uh, addressed a situation, like whether they thought about it and solved it or, or they've established a process and given that to a team to do. And in their minds, it's done because the process was written. But, but really, that's not the challenge. It's the, the real um, objective is to get another human being to do the things that we need them to do to satisfy a client or whatever the case might be. Right. And so if we, if we stay, you know, if we only fall in love with the process and we forget about the person, it's tough to get their all. And, and the more we can get out of the person, the more, the more um, engaged and involved or committed to the, the real ob- objective, uh, the better off we're going to be. So, I, you know, a lot of companies load up with rules. Um, I think that rules are more like tools. Uh, maybe like a, a simple example would be the, the Ten Commandments. We could look at them as being rules, like you must do this, you must do that, or we could say it's a tool. If you want to have a, have a good life, you, you probably don't want to violate any of the, the Ten Commandments. You're probably going to live a better life that way. So it's, you know, is it a rule or is it a tool really trying to lighten the load um, on people for them, uh, for them to be successful? You know, what I found over the years is that so many of these roles, regulations, prohibitions, prescriptions, spelled P-R-O-S-C-R-I-P-T-I-O-N, that we find in organizations that govern people's behavior, what they're supposed to do, and what are not suppo- they're not supposed to do, are permanent overreactions to minor temporary issues exactly yeah and i love to tell the story and you may have heard this before in fact in your line of work you probably have so uh, there was a man who asked his wife why when she put the roast in the pan to roast it would cut off the ends of it And she said, well, my mother told me that it made the roast juicier and it brought out the flavor, so it makes for a better roast. So the guy was curious, and he went to his mother-in-law, and he asked her why she told his wife to cut off the ends of the roast. And she said, well, you know, as they said in the old country, when you cut off the ends, it lets in the flavor, it makes the roast juicier, and it makes for a better roast. And that was handed down to me from my mother and from her mother and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the grandmother-in-law was still alive and they were over the grandmother-in-law's house for Thanksgiving. And the husband remembered to ask his grandmother-in-law why they cut the ends off the roast and why this was a family tradition. And the grandmother-in-law said, Look, during the Depression, we didn't have a big pot, so I had to, so I had to cut off the end so it would fit in the pot. The point being is we not only forget the origins of why we do things sometimes, but we create these, or we see created these grandiose explanations and reasons where the actual catalyst was often nothing more than an expedience. The reason they cut the ends off the roast is because they didn't have a big enough pan and couldn't afford to buy a bigger one. So it became this whole thing about how it would improve the quality of it, which was not actually the case. Yeah, I, I, that's a cute story. I, I know um, there's so many examples of things like that. Uh, today we were having a meeting, and um, one of the challenges that, that one of our, uh, my key people was having was related to data. He wanted um, he wanted to have some information as to how many uh, – how many proposals that we submit um, are done within uh, 48 hours. And that's an internal goal. It's not, it has nothing to do with the, um, our client's request on it. It's just something that the faster we propose it, the better position we are in to, to uh, acquire the business. And of course, and so, yeah. So, so there was just like this kind of debate going on and, and they wanted to have a percentage. And I, so I just simply asked, well, does it matter if it's accurate? 
And automatically, well, yeah, I mean, why would we want to look at something that's not accurate and all of that? And through, through the conversation, uh, um, I, I kept kind of poking at this, like, does it have to be accurate? And it sounded kind of silly to the team. And then in the end, when we got to the spot is th that everyone recognized that this item was simply directional. And if we tried to, really the important item for us is how many bids can we submit the same day? And if I can get the team focused on taking care of the same day ones and manage those super closely, then anything that did not get done in the same day then falls into this, the category of wanting to be done within two days. Um, and those are easier to monitor. So, so the percentage being precise, though it makes, it, it makes logical sense. And if I was to say to you, well, would you rather have accurate information or inaccurate information? You know, everyone would pick accurate. But if, if the question was, um, would it, would it be acceptable if I gave you enough information for you to make the right decision? And that's, that's really the only burden. So it, I don't need to make sure it's precise and I don't need to, to do all this labor intense work to find out what that true number is. I just need to give a direction. And with that direction, we're gonna be able to get the outcome that we want without burdening it with all process and all these other things that go along with it. Though this might be a hard to grasp concept, a lot of things really don't need precision. You need, if you wanna be successful, figure out what needs to be precise and make sure that's precise, but don't make everything precise. You just don't get the bang for the time. Yeah, I've discovered uh, working with digital marketing agencies, uh, some of the ones who've worked with some of my consulting clients, especially the really good ones, will work, will put multiple tracking softwares on a landing page or multiple tracking cookies inside an email, whatever it is they're looking to track, whatever funnel they're following. And it, I got to where I began to ask them, right? So we have Google Analytics, we have Woopra, we have the Facebook Pixel, and we have a couple other things. Is it possible that we're using all of these different codes simply because no matter how accurate you think something is, all five of these softwares are going to give you a different answer, and you're simply looking for an average that gives you a general idea so that you know what you're doing overall? And they said, exactly, you get it. There is no such thing as precision when it comes to this because all the tracking softwares deliver different data off the same platform. You know, it's, it's funny because the, the objective, like with the bids, we go back to, you know, how we're people first, that even if the system is automated and it tells us what the, you know, what it is, it's still trying to get a human being to put the right level of urgency on getting that bid submitted the same day, right? And so no matter what, process no matter what data no matter what like th that objective of getting it submitted the same day is mm -hmm. very rudimentary right it's a it is just a simple item it get the bids done same day that's all yeah. it is and oh, we got to get this data point and that data point and get an average and set a goal and then roll this out to the team and make sure we track it get your bids done the same day that's all everybody <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, yeah it's not really challenging and see i would develop that and th this is great i love when we have these conversations where i would look at that from is if the real goal ultimately and i love how you asked that question if the data has to be accurate you suss out the goal of we just want to get them out on the same day as much as possible then we begin to look at how can we apply our processes to support us in getting the bids out on the same day and just write i, I don't know this business that you're working with the same way that you do, but right off the top of my head, I could imagine a few things. I could imagine having some sort of software that allows us to do conditional logic, where if we're building a bid, and we know that there are basically three different basic types of bids, that when you get to a certain process and building this document, it says, which type of project is this? Is it project A, project B, or project C? And if it's project B, I just select the radio button for product B, or C rather, and then click it. And then it takes me to a screen that says, if there are any specific modifications, please add them now. So that we're not going back and rewriting the bid every single time. I would also want that set so that if you have a, a condition on your bids, like you know, this, these price estimates are good for 30 days from the day of this document, that it automatically populated that, that date. Uh, if, uh, it if there was a different signatory on your company's end, that when it came to building out the signature page, that you had a radio button selected who on your company's end would be the signatory of the document. So that's where I would start because that would reduce the amount of time that it took people to get the bids out. 
Uh, I might also look at, are we supporting people and having dedicated time where they can say to all other requests and things incoming, look, I got to get these bids out for the end of the day. So that becomes a cultural matter of how we set priorities and how we drive people to achieve results. That's just two things right off the top of my mind based off your excellent question of asking if the data needed to be accurate. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we do uh, 3,000 projects a month. So, I mean, we, got, we, we do a, a tremendous amount of, um, of, of bidding and, and the process is very streamlined. Um, each, uh, we don't sell, we don't manufacture anything so we're not selling something that's always the same, um, or like you know, product number one, two, three, or ten. We're, um, it's a customized scope per location. So it's really cool because it, it requires a um, someone that's thinking uh, on the other end of it, right? Rather than rather than it just you know being something that I could give a twelve-year-old to do to just you know pick each. It literally has to. We have to take a look at the scope, ensure that the scope is clear. The, the, uh, a lot of times, the person giving us the scope is the person that's doing the work, um, rather than it, rather than the client. So the client has a request; they're not sure what's needed. We send an expert out. That expert comes back. We got to review that to ensure that we we w believe that that is the accurate scope of work. If we do not believe it is, then you know, dispatch someone else to take a look at it. Uh, we got a couple of different uh, information points that we need, and then all that needs to be processed into a, an estimate. That, that fits the parameters that we've uh, established with the client. So we established these service level agreements that like this kind of work, this is the quality expectation, this is the, you know, uh, the, the turnaround, the time, the, the, all the, the different things that go with it. So we're dealing with some pretty sophisticated buyers. Most of our buyers are in charge of 40 or $50 million in budget, if not more. Uh, we only work with these super recognizable uh, brands. So, so like we're, it's very um, it's very demanding on on our team to make sure that this stuff is there, and so to to make it um, work, our objective really is to make it easier for the proposal to go through. So so we establish um, an ongoing pricing guide that some items are similar. When when you have a, a guide that says, hey, as long as your proposal is within this box and your vendor's proposal is inside of this other box, then you have the authority to do it. So, so our pricing guides are, the, are like these dynamic, um, dynamic documents that, that guide our, our path, but, the whole, but the whole, with the understanding that every one of them is custom. So, so how do you provide guidance when you don't have an accurate scope? Well, you establish ranges, and those ranges capture a big percentage of, 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 the, of the projects. Then everything that's outside of that goes to a supervisor who has the authority to propose things that's at a higher level. So, so it's, uh, our process really is driven around um, what, what each person's permissions are. So, so you establish, hey, these folks have permission to propose anything that we already have an established pricing uh, range for with the, the subsequent uh, vendor range. And as long as it's within there, you know, they're, they're green-lighted to bid. That allows us to, to, to submit bids more quickly. Then if it's outside of that, having it go through the, a supervisor who understands that they don't leave until all of their open bids are submitted each day, right? And so that means that they spend more of the time processing the more complex ones, which really is not, I mean, I used a lot of words to describe it. I didn't know we would be discussing proposal uh, workflows, but th this, is what, this is what we've done is established that that this falls into a sandbox, I'm gonna teach you how to operate in your sandbox, and I'm gonna support the heck out of you and give you the tools, resources, and training you need. Then it elevates there, and, and then we have a, a set of protocol there to give those folks the permissions they need. And then above that, you know, it goes to, to someone that's senior. And, and this process really does work well. But if you, if you look at it, it's not a plug and play process, it is a Know where you like. Know what what's within your your um, um, uh, set of responsibilities and what's not. And if it's not within yours, if it's outside of what you're capable of, move it to that person as quickly as possible. And and it and it really does work. I mean, that's why we're able to turn bids so darn fast. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think and I think that it's good that we went over some of that because that does show the value of taking the people first philosophy look at everything you did you 
you raise the question about the data. Does the data have to be accurate? Which opened the conversation about what was really the goal here. And once you identified the goal was get all the bids out on the same day as much as possible, then that drove a conversation about how to support the people in your organization being able to get those bids out. And as you said, every bid is customized in scope. And even if you were to analyze 3,000 bids, identify five different trends and create five different boilerplates, you're still gonna be doing modifications each one of them. And I found that doing bidding and contracting myself in, in previous business models, that you spend most of the time on getting bids out simply by editing the section about what you're actually gonna do for them. Yeah, the scope, right. Yeah. Well, you, you got it, you got it. Right, so, uh, what steps do you take overall in building a building somebody into a people first leader and make that part of the DNA of the company? Well, I think the, the, the core values uh, play a big big role in it. I'm not one of those fluffy guys that likes yeah. you know it's I mean I, I don't want to hear that nonsense. But the 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 uh, if if you're gonna have if you're gonna have a so, so we have our objectives, right? Our goals, the, the tangible items, and then our core values are more like uh, the behavioral guidelines for how we're going to behave, uh, for how we're going to act. Uh, and so I'll just share with you what ours are. The, the first one is uh, honor the promise. And um, so if you make a promise, you're expected to keep it, you know, basic. So go back and look at how, you know, we're people first. Who doesn't want to deal with someone that does what they say they're going to do? Um, but there's the unwritten promise, right? And so, so if I've hired somebody, um, they've, it's because they've basically promised me that they're going to make my company stronger and better. Otherwise, why would I hire them? And, right. and, my, and, their, and, and my promise to them is that, hey, your, your career is uh, safe in my hands. Otherwise, why would they work with me? You know? So uh, the, the second part is valuing people. Um, you have to you have to value other people. I mean, if you you don't recognize that we can't get this done with, with you know without other people, I mean, it, it's too it's too simple of a concept. Uh, uh, the the other one, I, I'll just I don't have to go through all of them, but we have four of them. But the the one that's super important to me, um, move forward. That's something that we do is we move forward, and so moving forward. Of course, training and developing people helps them move forward. Um, learning from our mistakes, you know, that, that's moving forward. Uh, but the the, uh, the the real secret piece of that is um, is forgiveness, right? To to forgive one another and to forgive ourselves, because that's really the biggest obstacle to being outperform uh, to outperformance is people don't forgive themselves and they don't forgive other people and they put them in a box and no one likes being in that box that, that people put them in and. And uh, everybody suffers because of it. So, so the remedy to all of this um, is that sounds again very, very uh, simple. But I, I believe that a manager should only manage people that they like. People, uh, and even though it might sound, you know, a little, uh, a little childlike, um, if you like somebody, you're willing to put in the time to to teach them. You're willing to to, to show them uh, if. You had to stay late to teach somebody something and you liked them or didn't like them, you know, which one would be a more, uh, which one are you more likely to do and things. So, so I, I related to, to like my children, you know, I, I have to see the good in them. And if the, if the manager does not see the good in their, in their people, it's going to be tough for them to, to really uh, help that person be successful at the company. If they don't spend the time to teach them and with them and, Um, then the people won't be better at it. Require the, the the folks actually care about them. So if you don't like them, you don't care about them, you might not do it. And then being there to cheer them on, to, to help them come through, that's that missing piece that really gives a lot of satisfaction. So you have to you have to like the person that you're managing, uh, that, that, that's uh, managing, that you are managing. And if, if you hit that, then it makes it a lot easier for those other items. Yeah, yeah, you raise, uh, you raise a lot of great points with all of that. Now, there's another thing that you shared with me that I'd like to expand upon a bit here, and I think it kind of flows in a way from what you just said. 
how can focusing on the people who are most often overlooked turn a business into an industry leader? Well, why, why are people overlooked? Um, and I think that there's, you know, uh, it's like the superstars get all the attention, right? And uh-huh. who's calling them a superstar? Someone's perceiving them as a superstar. And so it's like, okay, well, they, they, they perform well in this and that, but it's, it's an opinion that they're a superstar. And then all of a sudden they get all the things that kind of go along with being a superstar. I think a lot of judgment gets passed um, on folks for things that are maybe really obvious. You know, like a funny one is if someone, if someone thinks that, uh, that, that you have attractive colored eyes, for example, and he said, oh, you have, you have great eyes. Like, okay, well, go thank my, go thank my mom, my dad, because, you know, I had nothing to do with it. So there's, there's something to the, the, what, what items that people put value on and um, aren't exactly the things that make uh, um, the business go. So when we were reviewing our, our performers, there was, uh, th- there was this one lady um, who nobody on the team liked. Like the managers didn't like her. That she was always criticizing things. And once I started digging through the data, she was the top performer. She was a non-conformer. She didn't their protocol and, and their, you know, like uh, their kissing up kind of attitude. And right. here was this lady who, who they wanted to get rid of, who was actually the top performer. And that's what really kind of opened up my eyes to like people put, put emphasis on their judgments that are outside of the work. So, so there's certainly a subjective element to, to perfect people's performance, certainly. And, and I'm not, do not eliminate it. Cause if you only go by the numbers, you're going to miss the, the interconnectivity of the people, but it's objective and subjective at whatever ratios really matter for your business. I'm not here to recommend what they are for someone, but there, there is, there must be an element of subjectiveness as well as um, objectiveness in, in the, the review of it. And, the, the things that people don't like, we, we had somebody that submitted a bid and the problem, she, the, the lady submitted the bid and it was outside of her parameters, but her parameters weren't really explained to her. So they wanted to go and correct her and say, you don't, you never send a bid like this and you kind of correct it. And I said, I don't know if that's exactly the way we want to respond to it. Well, John, she submitted a bid that she shouldn't have and she needs to know that's wrong and you know, not do it again. I said, I think you got to go tell her nice work. I'm so glad that you wanted to get the proposal to the client as quickly as you could. And the guy's face dropped. He, he was floored. I'm like, you want more of that. We're trying to turn our bids over as quickly as we can. Here's someone that's proactively trying to submit a bid to the point where she submitted it when she shouldn't have. Why shouldn't she have? Well, she doesn't understand the rules. So I don't think that you want to go over there and beat her, beat her up uh, uh, over, you know, like criticize what she's doing and all of that because she's doing the right thing. So how about, hey, I love your initiative. I love that you submitted the bids. I wish that everybody wanted to submit bids like you did. Um, so, so great work on that. Um, this piece is outside of what your parameters are. Here's what your sandbox is. Anything in here, go ahead and, and, and keep doing what you're doing if it's outside of that. I really wanna help you learn how to do more. So anytime you have one that's outside of that, come see me. I'll, I'll explain it right away to you so that you can submit it and, and keep going with this. You know, great work. So you can see, like, if you don't put the person first, if you put your rule first, then, you know, you're showing that the person's in violation. But really, that rule is set up to serve our clients well, or it should be. And what she's doing is to better serve our clients. And we should probably not thwart those efforts. We should probably celebrate them. And very simple live, live issue that happened a month ago uh, where, where the, the team wanted to correct her because she made an error when I wanted it celebrated because she had the right spirit behind what she was doing. Yeah. You have the spirit, you have the energy, you have the drive. Uh, That's something that is a forward moving energy. There's an inertia behind that. So now that you have the movement, it's a lot easier in my opinion, and you may have a different thought on this. Once you have the movement, you have the inertia of the energy. It's easier to course correct it or, turn the steering wheel to drive it to down the road you want it to drive versus actually getting it started in the first place. You got it. And you, you want to talk about overlooked. Um, I, you made 
the observation that companies tend to pay a lot of attention to the superstars. And I got to tell you, I was only in corporate scenarios for about five and a half years. So I don't have the decades that other people may have, but believe me, in those short five and a half years, I ran across some characters and some stories that, oh my goodness. Now here's a trend that I kept seeing over and over and over again, uh, from job to job, from department to department, is there were actually two groups of folks, actually, no, I'm gonna say three groups of folks that we saw getting inordinate amounts of attention, one of which were the superstars, another of which were the people who slacked off all day, and the third were the people who, even though you outranked them, you had to remember that they were the niece of the uh, CEO's personal assistant, so you had to pay them deference. So I've noticed that those were actually the three that get the attention. So think yeah. of those three groups and how the person who's actually, you know, quietly moving ahead, getting results can be easily overlooked. Right. I mean, if they, uh, I mean, when, when people, I mean, it's, how do you want to be remembered? And if you look at an operational person, typically you, you want them, you know, I have, I, I have a, a company that cuts the grass and pulls the weeds at my house. And there was a, a guy who wanted me to, uh, who, who owned his own business. He used to be my landscaper a long time ago. And there was an area of my, my grass that he didn't cut. And, and he kind of let, left it in overgrew, but I wanted it cut. And so we're having this discussion. Uh, and so we got into a little bit of an argument because he didn't want to put his $10,000 machine over there. I'm like, well, it's wet because you never cut it. So the sun doesn't, you know, doesn't dry it up. And uh, like, so just hand whip it and, you know, that let it dry out so that you can go. And so we get into this little discussion. And so I wasn't going to use them anymore. Um, and then like uh, the next, the next year he comes over uh, to my house and he's just like, you know what, John, I thought a lot about what you said and you're right. I'm sorry. You know, I want to service my clients better. And, you know, I was thinking about my piece of equipment and, and that rather than thinking of how I could really satisfy it. So kind of going on, and so I had a little bit of hope for the guy, and so so he wanted to do the business with me um, again, and and so um, he's like, you know, the people around here, um, it's like I can't give away. He was he was complaining that his business wasn't growing and things, and like you know, how do you sell to the people that you're already driving to a neighborhood? Why you know, try to get all the neighbors, you know, whatever. And so he says to me, you know, these people they they don't even want to pay you twenty five dollars to cut the grass. And so I, I looked at him and I'm like, oh, I don't even want to get engaged with this guy. But then I did. I said, you know what, I said, uh, Joe? I said, Joe, look at these homes. Do you think any of these people care about the $25? You know, it's got dollars. What you got to understand is that, that when people hire a landscaper, they want the landscaper to be invisible. They want their grass cut all the time. They want to be no weeds. The phone calls they want to have are around hey, a, a treatment that's going to make it look prettier, right? Flowers and things like that. But they don't want to call to remind you about the weeds and they don't want to call to find out when it's being cut. They just want it cut and they want it weeded. You got to think that that, that is the kind of service that people who have these houses want. It's not about the $25, you know, and, it, and it's, a frustrating, it's a frustrating bit because if you don't know what the customer is really looking for, and then you want to be critical of the customer for not buying what you're offering when you're, you're offering too much conversation. They're not looking for a friendship with their landscaper. They're looking for the, the landscaping to be done and out of mind. That's it. That's the, the number one objective here. Have my home look beautiful without any of my time being spent on it. And, uh, and I'm willing to write a check for it. So it might seem like it's harsh, but the, the idea here is that when, when you're dealing with something that's just keeping something looking good, that's the job. You're just making sure that it looks good and functions well. Well, those kinds of people should, uh, they're like, they, they just take care of business. There's no fanfare. There's no, you know, uh, big celebrations and, oh, I got your grass cut and look, I did it on an angle and that's it. Like, there's none of that. And so right. uh, that, that, that personality type that just takes care of business and goes home with no fanfare is phenomenal operationally. Well, we don't tend to take those kinds of folks and put them up on a pedestal. It's usually the funny people, the attractive people, the ones that, that we like to be around, the ones that make us feel good inside when we're around them. And that's typically coming from that like kind of cool or 
fun or attractive uh, folks. So I, I, I think that when we're talking about overlooked, like there's great beauty in people that are very determined and, 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 and stay on track. You know, uh, there's, there's great beauty in people that are really creative. Creatives get a lot of credit for, for being cool. They're eccentric, they're fun, you know, that kind of thing. But my goodness, if we had a bunch of creatives running a company, um, you know, there's probably not enough process to keep it profitable. Yeah, been there, been there and done that with some of my clients where the entire leadership is creative and there's such a, there's such a lack of process sometimes that it starts to feel in terms of their business trajectory like that movie Groundhog Day over and over again. There's someone I was working with a few years ago and she was one of those extremely creative types. But when it came down to details and process, she just lost interest in it. I would see her... Uh, go to the nines designing um, an incredible presentation, a great webinar, and want to be involved in writing all the awesome emails to drive it and should get huge registrations and lots of people on the line. And then just to give you an example of what would happen next, when it got to the part of utilizing that webinar to drive a sale or create a conversion or get people to take an action, she would when it came to the part of actually doing the work, which means presenting the webinar, she got so bored with it after 10 minutes. At one point she said, okay, Adam, can you do the pitch for me? Actually said that on a live webinar. Wow. Because she got that bored with the actual work and the process of getting the results from it. But her, but her brilliance and passion was in the creative side of it. Yeah. Business leaders also, some of them like the, like this, you know, it's like the salesperson, um, sales versus operations. The, the, the salesperson promises the world, and then the, the operations person is stuck trying to deliver it, right? And, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's tough. Well, a lot of people like the idea of something, and it's been solved once they've thought about it and they've shared their two cents. But there's a lot of things that go into bringing that, that uh, solution to life. And, um, again, that's a very uh, regimented, you know, systematic, methodical thinker that would go through it and and so who picks that person on their team i do you know because i want to win and i need right. a bunch of people i need a bunch of people that stay the course um so i i think it's just important so so they're overlooked and then the other thing is that some people are just overlooked socially just for for whatever reason well that's what happens to those people that were once overlooked but now someone's paying attention to them you know, they, they get super engaged and very committed and the loyalty that they have is through the roof. And it's like, why wouldn't you want to tap into it? And like, here's the thing. Why wouldn't you just want to be cool with people? Like, why, why, like what, what, is the, what is the cost of that? And you find out that it's nothing. It's nothing other than someone maybe doesn't want to be seen with somebody or want to be around someone or associate with the person. Uh -huh. like, but is that what you want to load up your team with? People that are that way? You know, it's like, it's backwards. So it's the overlooked uh -huh. ones that end up becoming the super important ones. Yeah, and you know, I think there is something to status. Uh, I have a colleague who had worked with a client, uh, uh, this co colleague of mine, he had, uh, at the time he had a digital marketing agency or something along those lines. It might have been more of a virtual assistance agency, I can't remember because the story's almost 20 years old. But he remembered he had this client that he worked closely with for several years, and then all of a sudden, the client basically started acting like uh, they, the client, were too good to work with someone like him and just started that process of socially isolating them on the team and, uh, and hiring other experts just to contradict my colleagues so they can make my colleague wrong and everything all the time. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was really pathetic in my personal opinion. I had an experience once where – I have uh, I, I had one client who um, you know taught a very niche subject that some folks might have found a little bit controversial, and then I had this other client that uh, said, "Hey, you know, I noticed you're working with so and so over there, and because uh, I saw because I saw the your webinar where you're talking about some work you did with that other client. Well, you know, I want to refer people to you, but I was wondering if you could like not mention that other client because people might get skittish about it and not want to work with you. And so I went to the person who said that to me and I said, okay, so in other words, 
pretend like I don't even know my actual friends when I'm walking through the hall so that maybe the cool kids will let me sit with them at lunch. I had no time for that in high school either. So you can tell everybody who feels that way that I already don't want to work with them, including anybody who would express a sentiment like that, period. What I, what I was implying was to the person who said, who actually said that to me, who suggested that I deny working with one of my other clients, I said, when well, if you feel that way, you can go to hell too. Yeah. Uh, because, and uh, I didn't, and, and what I got next was an apology for them even bringing that up. But I did need to make the point that, uh, no, no, we don't go around and say, uh, you know, pick and choose who we'll hang out with based on who other people hang out with or, or try and make them accommodate you. If it's a problem for you, then you go somewhere else. But what we also missed in that whole thing is because you're looking at surface issues, you're hearing something about somebody and deciding that you don't want to be seen as associating with them or you'll be friends with them, but you don't want to be seen saying hi to them in the hallway or something like that. How is that really creating a people-first culture of any type? Right. Well, not everybody knows that they should be doing that. Like when you when you think about what the environment. Like, again, we're we're people, and people depend on people. And no matter how much we want to think that we're in uh, independent, we were created interdependently. We need one another. We need the the help, the the, the sacrifice, the, the you know the the, the, the you know the, even the, like the warm shoulder the. The, the comforts we, we uh, I can't, there's a lot of things I can't do. I need other people to do. I don't know how to make clothes, you know, right. But I could go make money and buy it from someone that does, you know, and it's like, we, we, we need each other. And, and um, the, the ignoring of that, uh, it, it's like, you know, Oh, I want to be independent, independent, independent of what, like you want to be, you want to be above need of other per another person. Well, I don't know if that's exactly a, a good trait. You know, like, I, I don't want to need another person. Why not? I'm afraid of them letting me down. Well, that's what happens. We, but don't forget, you let people down too. <laughs> yeah. And, and we need to forgive one another. We need to give a little bit of grace and allow someone to fail. Um, I, you know, I've got four kids. The, um, the idea that they're perfect is crazy. Um, I want them to fail. I want them to fall down and pick themselves up. If they, if they, go through all their teenage years and never and never falter and then they become adults how are they gonna know how to pick themselves up because heartbreak is sure to find them it's just part of life um other setbacks are, are, are going to be there people are going to mistreat them all and, and, and all of that and um, they have to be strong enough to, to to handle it and i think it's my job to to make sure it's a responsibility um to do it but and actually it's more like like a privilege like I'm going to do something that's going to be meaningful for my kids. And you know what? It's meaningful to me too, because I might have to over-discipline in some areas in order for them to learn, learn something. Uh, but I'm also able to, to, to soften the blow. If, if the person knows what they did is wrong, you know, you don't have to spend much time explaining to them that it's wrong because they already know it. It's the ones that they don't know is wrong. I have two, my two eldest, one does her homework like a machine and the other one needs if she doesn't need 10 reminders, she doesn't need any, right? Constantly have to remind her. What happens to my influence of my of my 15-year-old if I keep reminding her to go do her when she always does her homework? So I could check the box off that says, well, dad was making sure that homework was done and that would be fine. But from her point of view, my um, my skills as an advisor go way down because I sound like a blowhard that keeps saying things that are unnecessary. Now, if you've got, any, if you've got children, and the idea that, you're, that you love your child so much, you want nothing but good for them, you'd be there for them no matter what situation came about, for them to think that you're a blowhard and would quickly dismiss your opinion, it could be one of the worst things that you could do for a child. So yeah, I'm not gonna keep reminding both of my kids to do their homework. I'm only gonna remind them when it needs the reminder. And the other one, I'm going to say, how are things going? I'm going to talk to her differently. I'm going to treat right. her individually. And so, again, these are just simple things that people miss on because they're not thinking about the other person. They're thinking about themselves and saying, oh, I want to make sure I check the box that says I was a good dad and following up on homework. Yeah. I, you know, I, I find that 
I find that pretty interesting and uh, makes me think of stories I hear about folks in their childhoods, especially of, and some of that even translates into the adult world. I, a colleague of mine told me about an experience that she had with one of her clients where sometimes one of her clients would just get stuck on something and would continually, continually, continually nag her about one little thing. And usually it was actually a very minor thing. Meanwhile, she needed important information from her clients to do the work that she was being paid to do for them. And she would ask totally legitimate questions. And the client would say things like, well, you know, I, I don't really have time for this. And, uh, and for the 15th time. And she revealed to me that whenever her clients started nagging her about things, she would intentionally keep putting it off just to drive the client crazy. This is somebody who was paying her. But she did it because she wanted to amplify that by way of showing them that by fixating on some small thing, it was actually creating the exact opposite of what they were looking for. The client wasn't hearing the message that by harping on these things, it was actually alienating people rather than taking the approach of, this thing that I need is actually important because it impacts Y. And if we don't get X done, Z won't happen. There wasn't any of that. It was just a bunch of nagging like she was too dumb to figure out that something actually needed done. And, uh, and at one point, the client actually nagged her about it five times in one hour, and it wasn't even an urgent thing. This is where, when I think of people first, I think of when we create process flows, going back to what we were discussing earlier, process flows, when we set up projects and softwares like teamwork and things like that, and we create dependencies or next steps, we need to think about that when we create things for people and organizations to do. And when we ask people to do things for us, give assignments and things like that, is one thing that we have found, and I've covered this in my book actually, is if you want somebody to actually meet the deadline, to be motivated to meet the deadline, and to recognize the importance, is to show them the impact that getting that done will have. So, so John, you do X, that means that Clara will be able to pick that up and do Y, which is her assignment. And, and Glenn, if you don't deliver that project, you don't deliver that analysis, then Suzanne is not going to be able to create the presentation that we need to face the client on Friday as part of the bid on the quarter million dollar project. So when people see that their completion of work or not has a direct tangible impact on other things down the line, that can be a great motivator because people don't want to be seen, generally speaking, as letting others down. But if you just harp on somebody over and over again and, and you do it so much you end up doing it five times in one hour and there's no justification or reason why then it's like hey, you know what i'm gonna keep not doing it just to see how crazy i'll drive them hmm. sanity is a finite resource yeah so that's that's part of my that's part of my take on that now one other thing that we wanted to cover in our few minutes left here is um just in general to bring this all together. John, having read your story and having seen some of the work you do, I've noticed the importance of living a principled life. And how for you has living a principled life made you a better leader? Well, I, I believe in, in God. And if you believe in God, then you know your place is below him, right? And so, yeah. uh, and we're amongst all the other people. And if, I believe that we're, all you know God's kid, children and so it's kind of tough for me to look at somebody else and with absolute disgust knowing that he, he or she is important uh, to my maker so so I think that there's that humility or res um, and respect for for um, for another person that 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 human dignity is just like I don't have to like what you do um, and I don't have to trust you but you do have I do have to to uh, respect that you have human dignity that just by being a person that you know that that there's um, there's value to you regardless of how I feel about your decision and what you do and all of that and so that I think that part keeps keeps me 
um, humble, right? And, and, and then the other part to that is a, a good man, the, the Bible describes a good man as being somebody that is um, slow to anger and quick to forgive. And if we think about a man that's quick to anger uh, and quick to forgive, you know, they kind of, they're uh, erratic a little bit. You know, you never know what you're going to yeah. get. And then if they're, if they're uh, uh, quick, to, uh, quick to anger and slow to forgive, I mean, those are brooders. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody says, let me go deal with that guy. You know, and I, so, so I, I think that when, when, when uh, people that are um, slow to anger and slow to forgive, they're grudge holders. So, I mean, if we just do that simple examination, man, I'd like to be that guy that's, that's slow to anger and quick to forgive and, and kind of live accordingly. And if I'm, if I'm that way I, um, and happy, even when difficult times come my way um, and I'm able to keep my, my mind about me and, and not act out of character or not, not very often out of character, I think that's a kind of a, a good thing, especially for, for other um, men and, and, and young men to, to see and, and kind of kind of work on themselves. So I think a lot of the problems in the world get resolved as men are able to be men and, you know, rather than kind of being taught always to be girls. It's like everything, you know, like there are differences to, to us and um, I don't mean it in any political way. I mean it like there's differences and we got different hormones and, and, and different things that make us okay. And uh, man, being that being a guy is uh, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with being a man. And I, I like right. it. I like that responsibility. And I like having, having to, to share it. And I, I'm hoping that um, I can do good for other people, just like so many have done good for me. Yeah. And, you know, we speak about uh, slow to anger, quick to forgive, quick to anger, slow to forgive. I want, I've always wondered if some of that comes from conditioning that some folks receive as children. For example, if you make a mistake as a child, how is that handled? Uh, do you have to go through hours and hours of process where you're nagged and prodded and browbeaten until you are able to explain in complete sentences how you were bad and you were wrong and you were so sorry and you'll never ever do it again? And after some time, you begin to reject the idea of feedback because the way feedback has been dealt with with you up until now is it becomes a a form of torture so and besides that whole thing of i'm really really sorry and i'll never do it again how do you know you won't do it again that's a question i love to ask when when uh, especially when i hear parents of children say and yes i and i got little susie to say that she was sorry and should never do it again i said really susie's never going to do it again really i met susie yeah <laughs> i think she's going to do it again exactly exactly so when we get the conditioning that any time we make any common mistake that there has to be a process and we have to and we have to uh, basically eviscerate ourselves to prove how sorry we are then since we were never given forgiveness why should we forgive others they should have to explain to us and beg our forgiveness and show us that they'll never do it again isn't that fair i i think it's i think the the, the most underused line is knock it off and it and, and and its cousin, get out of here with that nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> we, need, we need to hear we need to hear this more often, uh, a little less a little less coddling, especially when it comes from someone that loves us. That's gonna you know try to not overstep it, but give yeah. us the, the firm the firm response that we need um, in order to, to keep doing. Like you don't do that, it, you know. It's yeah. like uh, teaching boys we don't hit girls, right? We don't hit girls. Yeah. I don't care what the situation. We don't hit girls. Oh, well, she did that. We don't hit girls. You're a boy. We don't hit girls. Right? Like, like we, we're just firm on that. Right? We're just uh-huh. firm. We don't, we don't do the, there's certain things we just don't do. Don't, you know, don't, don't go doing this. You can do a lot right. of things. You can make a lot of mistakes. We don't make this mistake. And, and um, that, again, it goes back to, you know, just what you do. Even disciplining a child. I mean, I, right. I've seen heavy discipline, you know, heavy handed discipline 
hey, you know, people do what, what, what they do, uh, but you don't hit a kid in the face, you know? You don't, like, right. they, like they, you don't do things that start to disrespect a person. Sometimes, you know, I, um, like, I know that it helped when I, I, I got cracked quite a number of times. It helped me. It was good to know that I grew up in a very, very rough neighborhood, very rough neighborhood. And, um, the, you know, the worst area, the, I went to school in the worst area in Chicago, the worst area. And I learned real quick, you just keep your mouth shut. You know, you got something to say, to get popped, you know, and, and so you just learn things by, by having these controls put in on you. Now, those weren't ones that I desired. I didn't say, hey, let me go, you know, go this way. But you learn the rules of the game and then you play accordingly. And that discipline, that obedience to, to, to that situation, which was unwritten, there's obedience to, okay, the police or the teachers or the dean or whatever the case is. But to a, a, a peer, well, if the guy can, can knock your head off, probably don't want to get smart-lipped with them, you know? Right. He might knock your head off. So I think there's some good, you know, good um, self-control that gets learned through that. And so, again, we're people first. Let's recognize that people are struggling. Nobody wants to do a bad job. Nobody, you know, if they're doing something, that, if they're doing something that they don't, that, that, that is really, really bad, chances are they're in a pretty bad position on something. Uh, you know, take the time to, to, to investigate. Don't put them in a box. Try to categorize them. And then uh, that categorization is really a, a diminishing of them. Like you are just a guy that doesn't follow the rules or you're just something. You know, we want to get away from the word just and recognize that, Hey, people are a lot more things than just someone who made a mistake on that project. And a lot of things might have been um, factoring in. So maybe take a couple of minutes to go see what's going on in the world before you go handing out judge, uh, judgment and discipline and all that. Get to right. the bottom of it. Make sure what you're doing is right. You know, I use the example if, uh, if I ran into a, a, a store like Walgreens or, or CVS and, and I, ran out, uh, I ran out of the store without paying for something, you know, am I a thief? Well, yeah. You took something that didn't get, you know, I didn't pay for. If I ran in to grab bandage because someone outside had been shot and I didn't wait in line to, to pay, buy the stuff, I ran out there, yet I still stole, but it's not exactly the same thing as I'm going to take something that's yours for my own personal use. And it doesn't mean you're stealing because if somebody's shot and they need a bandage, there's nothing that said you weren't going to pay for those band-aids, but there wasn't time to stand in line to pay for them while you have a guy with a gusher out in a parking lot. So, so, gotta, so yeah, investi yeah, investigating the situation concludes, yeah, John had a guy who was shot. He ran in and grabbed some band-aids. So let's let him treat the person who got shot and assume until shown otherwise that he's going to come in and pay for the band-aids and say, hey, the guy was shot. I, went, I need to give him emergency first aid. Now, how do I pay for these band-aids? Exactly. So you got right. it. So, so that's the whole, that's the whole, the whole idea here is simply let's be a little slow before we go judging somebody as what they're doing is wrong. Why don't we, you know, ask a couple of questions just to make sure we're not making assumptions because once people make those assumptions, then, then they try to defend their, those assumptions and they start justifying these poor decisions and blah, blah, blah. But you want to go call the police on the guy that's saving the guy that got shot. Come on, get out of here. Yeah. Get out of here with that nonsense. <laughs> I know. I was, I, was on, I was on the receiving end of that once when I was trying to help somebody in distress and some bellhop at some hotel tried to get in my way. And, yeah. um, and I was dealing with somebody who was actually in a moment of distress, and this bellhop tried to enforce some policy on me. And I actually looked at the guy and I said, either help me or get the fuck out of my way. Wow. And his, yeah. and, his, and his choice was to get security to have me evicted from the property. But then I actually spoke with a security guy, and they, and, they, and they said to the bellhop, no, this person was actually actually a hero here trying to help this person. So in the future, maybe investigate the situation before making assumptions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That, I mean, I can't get into the distress we were dealing with. Let's just say it wasn't far removed from somebody being shot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we're right here near the top of the hour. And, uh, okay. and before we go here, uh, you have a little something for our listeners. Well, we're always looking to, um, to help companies that are looking to grow and that maybe need uh, some, some capital and some, some uh, other pieces. So if there are companies that are, are out there that, that know they can be accomplishing more, uh, just would need, need a little bit of help along the way, uh, we're happy to help uh, take a look at it. So if people want to reach out to me, um, they can find me at, uh, they can email me. He's probably the best way at john, yep. john at johnfairclaw.com. 
Um, that's J O H N F is in Frank, or as I like to say, fantastic. A I R C L O U G H dot com. Perfect, perfect, and uh, and you also uh, wanted to. You also, I believe, you had some gifts for our folks. Those are supposed to be surprises. Oh, surprises! <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, I'll I'll I'll, sh- I'll share a few here. Um, if our listeners go to Resicon Online, yeah, Ash, I'm sorry, that's um, yeah, Resicom R E S I C O M Online dot com forward slash BCR. Uh, John has a few great gifts for you, so just go ahead and check that out. Resicom Online forward slash BCR, and those will be some great things that will help you move forward even further, building on the topic of putting people first. So, John Fairclough, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And we trust that you've enjoyed today's episode of Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.